I cannot count the number of times I have left my house just spattered with my own blood because I was in a hurry to get in an Uber and I didn't want my rating to get too low. Welcome to You're Wrong About, the podcast where the perm of misconception meets the flat iron of hindsight. Oh my God. Right? Wow. I had a month to make that. The perm of misconception. (laughs) That sounds like something in the never ending story. (laughs) I am Michael Hobbs. I'm a reporter for the Huffington Post. I am Sarah Marshall and uh, I'm a woman sitting in a closet talking about OJ Simpson asking a boy to love her. If you want to support the show, we are on Patreon at patreon.com slash you're wrong about. And it appears by the time we have this out that we will be selling merch. If you want more details, just go to our Twitter page and we'll put something on there. It's Twitter slash you're wrong about, I'm pretty sure. And yeah, thank you for coming on this ride with us. This is episode four. Yes. In our series on the OJ Simpson trial. Yes. We're four hours into our telethon and we're about to go all the way. Mike, how do you feel? (laughs) Very good. I am extremely excited to talk about Marsha Clark and about this period of investigating OJ, I guess, during and after the Bronco chase. Yeah. I want to start by talking about who Marsha Clark is kind of right now versus who she was maybe four years ago in the American mind, because she's someone who's gone through a really interesting rehabilitation of image very recently. Like, what's your experience of that? I mean, she was one of these women that was sort of in the wave of recapturing 90s women who really got treated terribly, right? Like Tanya and Lorena Bobbitt. And Marsha Clark was one of the main people that we've now returned to and been like, we were really mean to this lady who seemed to have been doing her best. Yeah. Did you like have a sense of who Marsha Clark was before her image kind of got rehabilitated um, in 2016 with the Ryan Murphy show about the O.J. Simpson trial? I really didn't. I mean, I I don't actually think that I had such a negative view of her at the time. I think I just thought Mm -hmm. that she was incompetent. Because you were an 11 year old boy and you were kind of not communicating in the language of misogyny that was being spoken so fluently around you, maybe? (laughs) I mean, I think I was, but I just think that it didn't attach itself to her for whatever reason. Maybe for millennials, like Marsha Clark in the same way that so many other women who had jobs in, in public inspired this kind of vitriol among their contemporaries that maybe kids at the time didn't get because many of us were used to have working mothers. So we were like, oh, look, it's it's mom. <laughs> I mean, so what, what do you think are the big contrasts between her four years ago and her now? Well, first of all, I'll tell you my first impression of Marsha Clark, which is that I started researching the O.J. Simpson trial for the first time five years ago and got to the part where Marsha Clark, a, a prosecutor, is introduced. And I was like, oh, there's a the prosecutor is a woman. That's neat. Like, I mm-hmm. had no I had no memory of her. Oh, like I had no sense of her being someone who was attached to the case like. I had no sense of her as like a legendary figure. Mm -hmm. I remember when I read Jeffrey Tubin's The Run of His Life, which is the first book I ever read about the O.J. Simpson trial and which really like opened my eyes to so much of the complexity that we had forgotten since. The sense that I got about Marsha Clark and the thing that probably immediately made me (laughs) really like her and had like started 
my like attachment to her as a, a figure in the story that has has grown and blossomed to this day and which I must be open about up front. Mm-hmm. I guess really like Marsha Clark. And I yeah. think the first thing I liked about her was that like she was the one person who was taking all this seriously. Hmm. And also that she was trying i mean she had let me actually read you a quote okay so marcia clark has a memoir called without a doubt Mm -hmm. co-written with Teresa carpenter in it she says that one of the things she likes about court is that there are clearly delineated rules of combat rules that follow reason Mm -hmm. which to me kind of says a lot right this idea that she's drawn to work as a trial lawyer and she's like later on in her career promoted out of prosecuting and given an office job and hates it and has to be put back in litigation. Interesting. But what she's saying is that one of the things that she loves about it is that, you know, there are rules, there are clear rules and there are rules that are oriented toward logic and toward finding the truth. We're going to hear the phrase search for truth a lot in the next several hours of the show. So okay. get ready. But that that's what she believes trials are for and what trials are capable of. And that she believes that the law is able to actually bring about justice. Like you get the sense that she is operating Mm. from sincerity and from also a belief in, you know, we are all coming here to honor reason, basically. Man. And that's not what this trial did. I know. I was just going to say, it sounds so naive now, especially knowing what we know about the OJ Simpson trial and then knowing what we know about the legal system generally, that... The idea that it's this pure thing and everybody follows the rules and all anybody wants is to find the truth. It's just like hopeless somehow. It's so it's very like trust the system thinking. Well, and it's not as if she went into this trial as as like a newly as what she calls a baby DA. Like she's she's 40 years old at the time that her involvement in this case begins, you know, so she's she's been a prosecutor for over a decade at this point. She's. Mm Also been in high profile media cases before, like she tried a case that was featured prominently on court TV. So she already even knows what it's like to be working with kind of celebrity concerns and to have Mm. cameras on her all the time. So this is not really new for her, which I find interesting, too. Like, it's not as if she's like young or green. You know, I mean, she's she's a woman in her sexual prime, but she's not young as a lawyer. (laughs) Right. I knew you were going to bring that in somehow. (laughs) Well, I just I don't want to, like, leave there any door open to the fact to the idea that I'm, you know, that's less than complimentary about Marsha Clark's age, because I just feel Mm -hmm. like 1995 was a really, you know, was enough. Yeah. Right. Because, of course, (laughs) she's like facing off against F. Lee Bailey, who's 62 years old and looks like he's 80 because of the kind of life that he's been drinking his way through. But like she's the one who has to have thousands of words written about her under eye bags. Totally, totally. And the fucking haircut thing, which I'm still mad about. Let's talk about that, too. What do you know about like Marsha Clark's appearance? I bet you could tell me in great detail about like what she looked like at various times. Can I admit something? Yeah. I know I'm supposed to avoid spoilers, but the other day I was looking for a photo (gasps) to include in this post and it was Uh from an interview with Marsha Clark like a year ago or something. Uh And it was her talking about the infamous makeover where Mm -hmm. she began 
I ne- I always mix them up, but she began the case with a perm, right? And then she straightened it out later, or was it the other way around? She began with a perm. Okay, she began with a perm, and then she had, like, a makeover, quote-unquote, and then she had the straight hair. And so, of course, this was built up at the time as, like, oh, the cameras are on her, and, like, she's trying to gussy it up, and she's trying to look more professional, but but but. So in this interview that I cheated and read, and I promise I won't do it again. Where is this interview that you cheated and read? It's in Vulture. Okay. They're asking her about the haircut, and she says, that was a media creation. In the very beginning of the case, before opening statements, our press person said, you did a haircut, it looks kind of messy. And I did. It was kind of scraggly. So I got my haircut. That was it. And after that point, the media goes crazy with this shit. It's just so weird. There came that point in the trial when my perm grew out. I didn't have the time to go out and get permed again. That particular morning, I looked at myself and said, just blow it out and stop trying. You can't keep it up. You're never going to have time to go back to the hairdresser now. And I have straight hair. So I blew it out. Thus began the media parade about the makeover. How could I have had a makeover and still looked like that? I just don't understand. <laughs> oh, Marsha. But it's just so relatable to me about the way that people make those decisions. Yeah. We assume that people who are in the public eye do everything very deliberately And there's always some level of calculation behind everything they're doing. But oftentimes, like, she's a person. She doesn't have time in the morning. She doesn't want to deal with her hair. So she's like, fuck it. Don't you think the public's combined demeanor is a little bit like OJ the toddler, right? Where it's like, (laughs) why would you do this to me? Why this thing affects me? And it's like, a woman in Glendale straightens her hair and that affects your life somehow and you have to talk about it for days like what is that yeah yeah yeah. and maybe also in addition to that she's trying what no one will stop calling the trial of the century right (laughs) imagine that you're prosecuting someone for murder and you're on television all day every day and there's this weird thing where it's like the direness of the consequences of your work are what make it so that you don't have the time or wherewithal to be like thinking about eyeliner. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But also like that's what has brought them to the kind of prominence that makes people want to tell you what to wear. Right. Yeah. It's also it's like I think it also allowed people to blame her because they're like, well, if she didn't want people to comment on her makeover, she wouldn't have had one. Right. She's putting it into the public eye. If she'd wanted the jury to listen to her, she would have had a different hairstyle that yeah. would have made all of the sanctuaries of systemic racism just melt away. <laughs> yeah. Show me that hairdo. What have you been coming across in your readings about the social construction of Marsha Clark in 1994? I feel like the person who I have spent the most time reading on the subject of Marsha Clark's appearance is Marsha herself mm-hmm. at this point, because I've really been enjoying kind of going straight to the source Mm -hmm. (laughs) because it's like uh, wouldn't it be nice and maybe this is it for me wouldn't it be nice if we lived in a world where like marcia clark didn't have to be this like this very liz lemonish person actually who's like trying to be the rational center of this mess that is spinning out of control and is just every day showing up and is like here (laughs) is the evidence we have so much evidence, just like uh, just doing this, like be our guest of evidence, right? <laughs> just like any kind of evidence, practically that you could ask for. Like people who are doing legal commentary on this at the time, like often the remark that you hear is like, "It's very weird to have a murder trial with this much evidence in it." <laughs> like, Marcia Clark has uh, has won a case previously on a single drop of blood. Hmm. She's worked with that 
that degree of matter before. So she's like just showing up with this like reasonable case that like I imagine any lawyer would feel like they would have no trouble arguing in good faith and that there shouldn't be, it shouldn't be complicated. Yeah. And every step that she tries to take like falls out from under her. Right. And I don't disagree with the reasons that many of those steps fell out from under her, but Mm -hmm. they still did. (laughs) Right. Right. And she still believed in what she was doing. And she also, you know, from the very beginning was furious about what happened to Nicole. Hmm. So also there's always good stories of almost like radicalization when you realize the institution that you're a part of does not have the same mission as you or is not of the nature that you've been assuming it was. Hmm. To put all that trust in the law and then realize how easily it can be gamed and how hmm. money is so central to warping it in this way that hmm. if any of your defendants, right, like some random kid stealing a car, if he could afford five high-priced lawyers – he would probably manage to get off too. Right. Here's the thing too. Here's what I also want to like keep in the mix here as we go forward. That like, say this kid has all this money. He gets all these, he gets F. Lee Bailey and he gets off. Like to me, that would be very justified. Like to me, Mm. that's not like a reason why the system is invalid, but like what we also can, can state, I think with, with some security at this time is that the legal system we have is not known for handing out proportional sentences, especially Mm -hmm. for property crimes. And so if that kid was going to get maybe like 25 years in prison for a nonviolent offense, then it's like if the choice is between a disproportionate sentence and an acquittal, then I don't see how a disproportionate sentence is just simply because it is a sentence and because it validates that a crime happened. Like that's not right. That's not justice. Right. The phrase is beyond a reasonable doubt. It's not a preponderance of evidence. That's civil trials. You use a preponderance of evidence when you're going to be separating someone from their money, not their freedom. Like Mm -hmm. we shouldn't live in a society where we think it's terrible when someone doesn't go to prison. You know, I know that this is a complicated area. And in this case, like I, I believe that Marsha was on a righteous quest to put him in prison, but also my righteous quest isn't putting people in prison. So I feel many ways about this all at once. Right. My, one of my, one of the other things I really believe about the OJ Simpson trial is that people tend to regard it as unfair because it was so unfamiliar to us as a trial that was unusually fair, where like the defendant had a Hmm. chance and where there was Hmm. significant evidence against the defendant and where a lot of the public was poisoned against him through a lot of high profile media coverage Mm. and where there was still the possibility of a reasonable doubt Mm. as that jury was sequestered. I mean, Hmm. that's actually what you're supposed to have. Right, right. right. But so how how does Marsha get involved in this case? Take take us back to the the Bronco chase. I want to know what happens. We're going back pre-Bronco chase. We might not even get to the Bronco chase at the end of this episode. (laughs) I feel like the Bronco chase might be a looming horizon for us. And this whole thing could be not really. But like, wouldn't it be great if this was like a Tristram Shandy type podcast series? And I finally got to use my my English degree. I keep thinking about Inception, where like the third level down, an hour is like one minute in time on the first level. <laughs> and that's what it's like in Sarah time. <laughs> yeah, we go in, we do another two hour podcast and we're like, and we've covered one day of the OJ Simpson trial. Yeah, that's my dream. <laughs> so uh, this is awesome. So so rewind us. Where are we rewinding to? Okay, well, speaking of Inception time and Sarah time and you're wrong about time, mm-hmm. let's talk about Marsha standard time. Okay. 
It's June 13th, 1994. Okay, the day after the murder. The day after the murders, but okay. Marcia doesn't know that yet. Okay. All Marcia knows is that she is a 40-year-old prosecutor in, as we have already mentioned, her sexual prime. <laughs> With two young boys who she's taken care of. Wait, wait, wait. Two young sons that she's taken care of. You said sexual prime and then you said two young boys. Right oh, God. <laughs> With two young sons who she's taken care of. And three days prior, she has filed for divorce from her husband, Gordon. Oh, okay. Marsha and her husband have been separated for about six months. Gordon moved out of what she calls their dilapidated tract home in January. And... It's only at the urging of her friend Lynn that Marcia has finally bitten the bullet and filed for divorce. Who does that sound like? Nicole! <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so December 1993 is when she asks her husband Gordon to leave, and it's also at this time that she asks for her old job as a prosecutor after she's been given a promotion and a desk job. Mm -hmm. This is like a turning point for her. She's like, I can't go on with this marriage anymore. I can't go on with this job anymore. And I'm just going to plunge into the abyss, basically, hmm. because one of the things she also writes about in her memoirs is that she had a first husband who she met when she was quite young and then went straight from her first husband to Gordon. Okay. And so she writes, I'd spent most of my life with a man under the same roof. I was constantly terrified. Hmm. And... I remember reading this for the first time and being surprised and then surprised that I was surprised, which is an always an interesting thing because I was like, oh, like I didn't think Marcia Clark was scared of stuff. I thought she was like very tough and brave and a grown up and yeah. wasn't having the experience of being like a, a vulnerable new single mom, new single person mm -hmm. who was really going through a lot of what Nicole was going through at the same time, just in different <laughs> neighborhoods of the same city of like fuck, like I have to call a repair person. I don't know what to do about the plumbing. I don't know how to get hmm. the mold out of my bedroom wall. Like, I don't know how to take care of my house. I'm afraid <laughs> to be living on my own. Like, the, I've never, the, I didn't plan to do this. Is she hinting that there was abuse in the marriage? Why was she scared? No, she doesn't. She doesn't say that. She, okay. I mean, in this passage, she's saying she was terrified, I think, because she's used to having a man around just generally. Okay. Um, and also because this is like just a brand new life. I mean, I think you could see this as, as physical and or existential terror. Right. And what she says about her marriage to Gordon is, quote, I will not go into particulars because they are no one's business but our own. So it's not our business. Okay, that's fair. <laughs> but it's June 13th. Marsha drives into work. She's running on what her friends call Marsha standard time, which means she's always a little bit late. Mm -hmm. But this is like a quiet day. And she writes, I had no court appearances, no witness interviews, a short skirt day, no need for a believe me suit. <laughs> That's great wording. Yeah. So she goes into her office and she notices that her desk is like almost clean, which is just like, imagine, <laughs> I just like to think about this detail. Imagine that you're like, you're looking at your inbox, you know, and you're like, wow, I've only got like 13 emails in here and it just feels like things are in order. And I filed for divorce against Gordon. <laughs> and I just feel like I'm getting like things have been crazy, but I'm getting my life under control. Yeah. Things are calming down. Just like savor this moment with Marsha because it will not <laughs> ever come again. <laughs> so Marsha's desk is almost clean and the phone rings 
and it's a detective named Philip Van Adder. Okay. And he says, according to Marsha, she gives herself kind of private eye dialogue, which I don't always totally buy happened word for word, but like, okay. I like it. Mm-hmm. So Van Adder calls. He says, Marsha, do you have a minute? She says, I got two, man. What's up? <laughs> This is like Marcia's okay. first line of dialogue in her own book. <laughs> Isn't that great? I love her. <laughs> hard-boiled. She's hard-boiled. She's hard-boiled. Right. She is. Like, and she, like, sits around reading mystery novels in her spare time. And then post-trial, like, she writes mystery novels. And she, oh. you know, smokes like a character in a 90s movie who's being established as a rebel. So she smokes. <laughs> so... Phil Van Adder is on the phone. And she and Phil have a connection. He is in the LAPD's robbery homicide division, and they had worked together on a murder case two years before. This is the one where the evidence was a single drop of blood. And they convicted the defendant based on the DNA from this single drop of blood. Foreshadowing. She says they're buds, basically. And then he's, he's getting close to retirement, so they probably won't work on another case together again. Phil says to Marsha on this morning, I got this double. I need to run it by you. And Marsha explains that this is a common practice for a detective to call a DA to see if they have the material for a search warrant. And so he says, OJ Simpson, do you know who this guy is? (laughs) What do you think Marsha's reaction is based on the reaction of every other woman we've seen on this show so far does she know him from the hertz commercials she says wasn't he a naked gun or something ah okay i really love the fact that in this case where celebrity is so important and where people have this idea where they of like such a pre-existing image of oj simpson in their head that they cannot wrap their mind around him committing a murder mm. that the person who is prosecuting this trial is like who what Right. Who's O.J. Simpson? Is he Nordberg? <laughs> so Van Adder gives her the rundown, basically. He says that O.J. Simpson's ex-wife, who Marsha Clark always identifies as Nicole Brown, she oh. always identifies O.J. Simpson as Simpson. She never calls him O.J. She doesn't hmm. like that other people do that all the time. Hmm. And her book is dedicated to Ron Goldman and to Nicole Brown. So she hmm. she takes this all very seriously. Mm. But anyway, Van Adder at the time says there are two bodies, Simpson's ex-wife, Nicole Brown, and an unidentified male companion. And Van Adder gives Marsha the basics, which are in her words that there is a lot of blood. In fact, a trail of blood leading away from the bodies, mm. but cause of death not immediately apparent. He tells her there's a blue knit ski cap found at the murder scene. There was a brown leather glove found at the scene. Mm-hmm. And then after investigating this scene, Phil and his partner have gone to O.J. Simpson's house mm-hmm. to notify him of his wife's death. Mm-hmm. When no one answers and they can't get in and they notice what looks like blood <laughs> on a white Bronco outside, they decide to send the youngest and fittest detective among them over a wall and into the property. And mm-hmm. that detective's name is Mark Furman. Oh, okay. But I mean, I want to know what you think of that. I mean, it just seems so fucking obvious that he did it. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> why are we even talking about this? It's like, <laughs> genuinely, I mean, I, I feel like in all of the coverage, especially at the time, there was so much sort of hemming and hawing and back and forth. And like the sheer tsunami of evidence 
that OJ did this crime, I feel like completely got lost. I mean, literally a tsunami. I mean, it's unbelievable. Because of the violence Mm -hmm. of the murders, Mm -hmm. like the amount of blood is extraordinary. And later on, Marcia goes to to Nicole's house to look at the crime scene and is not let in because there's already a lot of tourists. And who's to say she's not one of them? Unbelievable. So says the cop on duty. A normal tourist activity. Visiting a crime scene. (laughs) Super chill. And she's staring in through this fence trying to get a look. And what she sees is basically this river of blood. Oh, God. The thing that stands out to her, too, is that there are these these paw prints that have walked through. Oh, fuck. Through the blood and then and then down the walkway. Is that Cato? Is that the dog? That's Cato. (gasps) Oh, my God. Do you know the story of Cato? What's what's the story of the dog? There's a story of the dog. I didn't even know there was a story of the dog. Yeah. Oh, yeah. The dog actually. Let me show you because I bought there's an Annie Leibovitz portfolio and an issue of The New Yorker from 1995 of some of the principals in the O.J. Simpson trial. Okay. And the first portrait is of Cato the dog. Really? (laughs) Yeah. Let me send it to you. Okay. Okay. Oh, wow. Doesn't he look like a good boy? Yeah. He's like a German shepherd in the front. And like a zebra in the back. He has like weird stripes going on. <laughs> He's an Akita. Wait, what? He's an Akita. That's that's what he is? Mm-hmm. Oh, I've never heard of that brand of dog. <laughs> it's an extremely attractive dog. Well, I mean, so after the murders, there is a fair amount of commentary on the fact that Cato displayed subpar... <laughs> oh, like he should have protected her and he didn't? They, people are blaming the dog? Yeah. What? Yeah. That seems like a weird take, but like, whatever, you got to fill the newspaper every day. <laughs> you got to <laughs> Do be, you? You got like 36 inches to fill. Got to put something in. Do you have to in. fill it with blaming dogs <laughs> like, on was things? Was it the dog? Oh my God. And I guess Akitas are known for being pretty protective. They can be pretty aggressive. Mm-hmm. And one of the people that Dominic Dunn interviews says i was just at an akita event and all of us agreed that oj had to be the killer because there's no way that a stranger could have been like lurking around the house or (laughs) invading the house and kato wouldn't have barked at him like it had to be oj or they would have heard kato barking sooner i mean sure i don't know that's that's another one of those internet sleuth details where it's like we really don't know very much and we're trying to read significance into the details we can know. But like, I don't know. You don't know their dog. Maybe the dog barks a lot. Maybe he almost barks never. Hmm. And there's much better evidence that OJ did it. So again, it's like mm-hmm. on the list of good evidence, it's like 1032nd on the list when it's like the trail of blood is like pretty good evidence. And like the long history of domestic abuse is also very good evidence. Like we don't we don't need to go to dog breeds. That's true. At the same time, the first time I read that, I was like, huh. <laughs> That is persuasive. (laughs) Like, there are details that, like, make a scenario make sense to you suddenly or, like, make something easier to visualize. And I was just like, yeah. yeah." Right, right. But Cato, the dog, ends up being the one who leads people to the crime scene. He's the reason (laughs) the crime scene is first discovered. And the way this happens is that the night of June 12th, a guy named Steve Schwab is walking his dog around Brentwood. And he later proves a very reliable witness because 
he can place the time that he discovers Cato the dog at right after he had been watching the Dick Van Dyke show between 10 and 1030, mm-hmm. because he always walked his dog right after that so that he could get back home, I think at 11, so he can watch the next show that he wants to see. He has kind of like his little evening routine scheduled around reruns. Okay. Interesting. And he happens to pass a white Akita barking at a house, which he kind of pauses and looks at. And he, he goes up to the dog and looks at it. And as he's looking at the collar and getting a closer look at the dog, he notices that there's blood on all of his paws. Oh my God. So he can't figure out where he lives. And he ends up walking home and the Akita follows him back to his house where he gets home at Mm. 11 as he planned. And the Mary Tyler Moore show is on, Mm -hmm. which just like, it's funny to me that the first details of this, like the first the public encountered this case were just like so mundane, right? It's just like this, this guy who structured his evening around his, his TV shows. And he's like, this feels... (laughs) so familiar right you're just like Mm. i'm gonna watch my one show and then i'm gonna walk my dog and then i'm gonna watch the mary tyler moore show yeah because you know i guess i feel like things like this remind you that like this is real life like this is this is not entertainment i mean it is entertainment it became entertainment we can't say that it, it wasn't that this is all part of the real world that we all live in that we watch right. our shows in can i ask a logistical question yeah i'm just thinking like i I am sick to my stomach thinking about like the last minutes of Nicole and Ron's lives. Yeah. Is there is there a reason people didn't hear screaming or something? Are these like just big houses far away from each other? I don't think that they're super far away from each other. It's in more of a cramped area of Brentwood than the one OJ lives in. Okay. The crime scene is at the end of a long walkway and there's a lot of okay. kind of trees and foliage. So it, it makes it hard to see. From the sidewalk. Mm-hmm. One of the reasons that Nicole was able to afford the Bundy condo was because it had been on the market for a long time before she bought mm-hmm. it because people really didn't like how much traffic noise, especially, you got because it was on a pretty busy road. So I think that that was mm-hmm. a big part of it. People heard other stuff. There's a, a witness who later testifies that he was out when he heard coming from from nicole's house a man's voice saying hey 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 which ron goldman's family talked about knowing that that was exactly what ron would say Mm. coming across a situation like you know whatever whatever he found it's just terrible to think about there might not have been time for screaming yeah or there might not have been very much i don't know right I'm glad that you feel really horrible, too, now. (laughs) Yeah, I know. This is how you felt for months now. It's just such a bummer to think about. Yeah, I used to just drive around listening to Jump for My Love really sadly. Oh, my God. People do that, too. (laughs) (laughs) I think you have to start by thinking of this as like not this fascinating murder, this like puzzle for us to solve, which is how we like to regard our murders. But as like Mm. a woman's life that almost happened and a a young man's life that kind of ended before it was beginning. And just like this thing that didn't need to take place, it didn't have to happen. You know, there were just so many moments when things could have changed and just the resources were never available to the right people at the right time. Right. Who called 911 finally? Like who discovered the bodies? (laughs) So this is kind of a funny story. 
It's slightly funny. It's going to feel funnier because this has been so sad. So Stephen Schwab, the unsuspecting dog walker, comes home and Mm -hmm. tells his wife, Linda, that a dog followed him home and points Mm -hmm. to this majestic white dog that's standing outside with blood on his paws. And so Mm -hmm. their neighbor, Sucru Tepe, comes home at that time. Mm -hmm. And Sucru and his wife, Bettina, decide to take the dog out for a walk to see if they can mm-hmm. maybe wind him down or find his house. They take him for a walk out in the direction of where Stephen found him. And the dog keeps getting more nervous and pulling them more and more. And around midnight, the dog stops in front of 875 Bundy Drive. Mm-hmm. The house is dark enough that they wouldn't have noticed anything if the dog hadn't been pulling them toward it. But mm-hmm. they lean in and and look and uh, see what looks at the time like Nicole lying down and blood <gasps> all around her. So she's like visible, almost visible from the street if you like come up to the if house. If you concentrate, if you... I mean, because there's a long walkway okay. and Nicole is at the bottom of her front steps. Ugh. So... <laughs> Sucru and Bettina, after seeing this, go to a neighbor of Nicole's and knock on her door. And the person who lives there, an old lady named Elsie, (laughs) calls the police because she fears, you know, someone's knocking on her door. That's weird. Oh, right. Okay. She calls 911 and reports an attempted burglary. Mm -hmm. And so Officer Robert Risk picks up the call. He comes to Elsie's house and figures out what's going on. And then he's the one who Sucru and Bettina take to Nicole's house. And then he calls the cavalry, I assume. And he and Officer Risk calls the cavalry. Okay. So after all of that, because at at the time that this happens, Marsha Clark is sleeping soundly, or maybe she has insomnia as reading a detective novel. But in any case, she doesn't know what's happening. But in any case, it's the following day that Marsha gets the call from Van Etter telling her, Here's what we found at OJ's house so far. Can we get a warrant? Okay. So then in the call, they had gone over to the house. They saw the trail of blood. They couldn't get in. So Mark Furman jumps the fence. Well, and what they say later on is that they come to the house of the ex-husband of the victim. They see a trail of blood. And so they say that they send Furman over the wall based on the understanding that they might be protecting whoever lives there from a possible assailant. Okay. Which, you know, my my sense of that is like, yeah. And also, <laughs> you have reason to suspect that O.J. Simpson is a possible victim or a possible assailant, right? Yeah, those are the options, I guess. And it's after Mark Furman jumps over the wall that he finds the glove that is a partner to the glove that was found at the crime scene at Nicole's house. Wait, so they find one bloody glove at her house and one bloody glove at OJ's house. Yeah. That's like how good the evidence of the bloody glove is. That's like how open and shut it is. Yeah. Oh my God. I feel like I wouldn't call anything open and shut at this point, but like, it's like a little puzzle you would give third graders about like, this is what Detective Simmons does at a crime (laughs) scene. The assailant cut themselves and bled all over the place. Yeah. yeah, and the fact that there's one glove at the crime scene and one glove at OJ's house, it's like, I honestly wonder if you could leave more evidence if you tried. Right. Right. Like he's cut up his driver's license and left little shards of it lying in like a Hansel and Gretel trail from one murder location to his house. <laughs> 
Yeah. It's like the kind of evidence you would have in a game of Clue. Yeah. <laughs> but Mark Furman found the glove. And Mark Furman is a complicated guy. Right, right. And this will come up. Yeah. And so getting back to Marsh's call, um, yeah, so Van Adder tells her about the evidence. He's like, do you think this is enough for a warrant? Which I'm pretty <laughs> sure he knows the answer to. Yeah. Seems, seems good. Seems strong. And Marsh is like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. We've both done this before. Yeah. So Marsh is like, I can go out to Rockingham and supervise the cops that are serving the warrant if you like and he's like yeah that's that sounds good and i'll call you after i type it up and then he writes and it's like the warrant signed and we're all done and everything's great and mark is like oh you weren't you weren't gonna read it to me before you submitted it or keep me in the loop or anything and she's like okay that's uh that feels weird but i'm not gonna bring it up because i have a history of friction with the cops and like let's not make this difficult from the start like let's be on the same team mm-hmm. let's just play along and then everything will will work itself out okay and she's like oh phil by the way like do you do you, you have a really good criminalist on this right and he's like um yeah we have the, we, uh, the guy we have is okay is he talking about mark Furman or somebody else no the criminalist is the person who gathers evidence at the crime scene oh okay so that's obviously like one of the most exacting jobs yeah if you don't collect the evidence in the correct manner and store it in the correct manner and right you know collect and test all of the relevant evidence from a crime scene yeah and not miss anything and not inadvertently destroy anything right like that's what you need in a criminalist yeah you need somebody with like a lot of color-coded post-it notes <laughs> and very good binders to keep all this stuff in yeah you need you need a fiend for binders you need a binder fiend yeah. this is not what marcia clark is going to get Oh. And Marcia talks about the fact that during a previous case, she had actually been so dissatisfied by some of the forensic work that the LAPD did that she went to the sheriff's department instead. Oh, interesting. And they had to basically <laughs> redo the LAPD's work on her case. Whoa. Police departments don't seem to like it when that kind of thing happens. It's also so interesting of that there's all these people in criminal investigations that nobody makes TV shows about. Like, you don't have the climax of a CSI episode being that somebody put a piece of evidence in the wrong binder and, like, a bullet casing went missing and they can't try the case now. Not yet. It's because I'm not in charge of TV yet, but you just it'll be over for all you bitches once that happens. Yeah, I, I also think of, like, I don't know, people who clean up crime scenes. Mm-hmm. Crime scene photographers are really important. That's some good foreshadowing, Mike. Oh, wait, is it? Oh, yeah. We are going to be looking at lots and lots of crime scene photographs. Don't worry. Like, we are going to be talking about, like, could this be green and yellow leaves? Could it? Could it? You know, we are. Yeah. You know, I love logistics and I just love all the logistics involved in this case. You're going to love the Barry Shack episode. Like, that's going to be the sweet spot of all this for you. I just want all the project management. Just give me all the project management. (laughs) This is why you're going to fall in love with Marsha Clark, because she is, at the end of the day, a constantly disappointed project manager. (laughs) I've never I've never felt for someone on this show so deeply. And it's not even that her standards are that high. You know, she's like (laughs) she's talking to Van Adder and she's like, why don't we get Doreen music? She's a criminalist we had on 
this other case we did together where we had to win it based on a single drop of blood. Like she did great on that. Why don't we use her on this? And he's like, no, we've already put someone on it. And I heard he was okay. Oh, man. And Marsha writes, okay, was not terribly reassuring. (laughs) What's his name? I asked. And Van Adder says it's a guy named Dennis Fung. Which rings a a very faint bell for me. That's because Barry Sheck said his name probably 500 times. Okay. In the kind of cadence of, where is it, Mr. Fung? Does she know that he's bad or she just like doesn't know who he is at all? Well, Marsha knows that Phil Van Adder says he's, quote, okay, which is like, do you really want to hear that about anyone who's working on a case that you might also be working on? like. If I were like, Mike, I found someone to make tote bags for us. And you were like, oh, are they good? And I'd be like, um, they're okay. (laughs) Right. Doesn't feel great. (laughs) Does she make a thing out of it at the time? Or is she just like, oh, man, let's let's hope this isn't as bad as it sounds. No, because, of course, Marsha, again, like you can see how this is all everything that we are going to see is going to grow out of a very old structure. Right. We're like, Mm -hmm. The DA's office doesn't totally trust the cops that they're working with. Mm-hmm. Marsha is kind of known as being difficult. Okay. Essentially because she, I guess, wants like people who are better than okay to do yeah. her forensics. Yeah. And so her attitude, I mean, the same way that like when you go to Thanksgiving with like your family who in order to avoid outright conflict with, you're just going to like grit your teeth. and yeah. yeah, yeah. Sometimes it's easier to just eat the dry turkey. Right. Marsha is like sitting there eating the dry turkey. Yeah. And she's like, if I like play along and don't make this difficult for you now. Yeah. Then you'll come through for me later. Right. Which again, like, that's not a healthy dynamic. Like if this was a relationship between two people, you'd be like, I don't know, Marsha. (laughs) (laughs) A constant theme for our show. (laughs) I don't know. know. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, This isn't great. Yeah. So Marsha, Marsha, after she gets off the phone with Phil and learns about Dennis Fung, the OK criminalist, (laughs) goes to OJ Simpson's house in Brentwood. And I'll read you the scene. She writes, there is a cruiser parked up ahead where a uniformed officer directed traffic. A few civilians milled around outside an iron security gate. Some of them had the nervous, unfed look of reporters. Oh, my God. I slipped unnoticed past the press and through the gate where I got my first look at the larger Tudor-style house overhung with old eucalyptus trees. The manicured ground seemed to glow an unnatural shade of green in the midday light. In one corner of the lawn stood a child's playhouse. O.J. Simpson might be a has-been, I thought, but he must still be bringing in serious bucks to manage Mm. the upkeep on this place. Mm. I love that that's where her mind goes. Like, to me, that really shows that she is a relentlessly practical person. Like, she shows up at O.J. Simpson's house. Everyone else is like, this is an American tragedy. O.J. Simpson, the great football star. And she's like, this is an expensive lawn. Right. She's like, what is a lawn maintenance (laughs) schedule for this home? (laughs) Yeah, because it's like she's a practical thinker. Like she thinks about things in terms of like functional logistics. Is this also when she does the description of Nicole that you read to us a couple episodes back? Yeah, yes, this is. So this is where she sort of quote unquote meets Nicole. Yeah. This is also where Marcia finds out that OJ has a framed photo of him and Nicole underneath his box spring. What? That's weird. What's the photo of? Well, it's of of Nicole and OJ dressed up for some kind of formal event. Okay. He's in late middle age and he's keeping a photo of his ex-wife and himself underneath his bed because that's what time does to us. So she's like 
basically wandering around OJ's house, just sort of looking at stuff. Wandering is kind of an apt description because she gets there and she's like, where is everybody? Oh, uh, okay. <laughs> so another robbery homicide guy, Bert Looper, is there. And she's like, where, where are Tom and Phil? Tom Lang and Phil Van Adder. He's like, oh, OJ showed up at the house. And so... Mm. Tom and Phil took him to Parker Center to question him. Ah, okay, so that's where OJ is. That's where OJ is. Okay. And Mark is like, okay, that's a good use of their time. Well, anyway, not for me to micromanage. Right. I'm sure that the detectives are doing their job. Yeah. She's wondering when someone's going to show up and show her around. And that's when she notices some guys approaching who, quote, had the unmistakable swagger of detectives. Okay. Once again, Mark Furman is entering the story. Ooh, okay. And of him, she writes, he was a real straight arrow, hair closely trimmed, sheet pressed a little more neatly than the others. Okay. The main thing she mentions about Mark Furman is that he is not one for small talk. She calls him politely condescending. <laughs> Sick burn, Marsha. So Mark Furman is the one who gives her a grand tour of Rockingham. Mm. First, Furman takes her to the spot where he found the glove, which is on the path that runs behind the guest house where Cato Kalin has been staying. And okay. when the cops first got to OJ's house, they woke up Cato and interviewed him and first thought that he was on something because he was super woozy okay. and disoriented, okay. which like... They woke him up at six in the morning. I feel like I would probably yeah. seem pretty disoriented then, but maybe he's like super disoriented. Right. But he tells them that he was on the phone with a friend the night before and he heard thumps coming from the wall, like a, hard enough that like a picture that was on the wall was like shaken. Okay. And thought for a second that they were having another earthquake. Okay. And what Furman tells Marsha is that he thinks that's the sound of the killer basically hitting that wall or that air conditioner and dropping the glove as a result. Hitting it with the car or with his hand? No, with his body. Like he's running oh. and it's dark and he like runs into the air conditioner oh. or he jumps over, vaults over a wall to get back onto the property and the thumps happen that way. Like this is, there's a couple of different scenarios for this. But basically that like whatever impact happens, however it was made, causes the second glove right. to basically like fall out of the killer's hand or mm -hmm. something. So the, 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 the theory is that OJ went over there, committed the murders and then sort of rushed back. Yeah. So the car is parked at a weird angle. So it looks mm -hmm. like it was just like parked in a hurry. <laughs> so Mark Furman tells Marsha that he thinks the killer basically ran into the air conditioner and then dropped the glove without realizing. And Marsha asks, did you pick it up? And he's like, no, I didn't pick up a piece of evidence. Mm -hmm. I'm a real detective. That's his politely condescending. <laughs> I think one of the one of the sad parts of this case, too, is that like Mark Furman actually like from the standpoint of like noticing things and gathering evidence and giving a shit about details and like assessing a situation like he does like in the kind of purely deductive realm seem to have been a pretty good detective yeah. like he actually seems to have been better at his job hmm. than a lot of the other people here interesting because Furman was the first detective assigned to the case very briefly they gave it to him and then they're like actually we're giving it to robbery homicide okay so you're cool just right. you know go back to to the bench so he was on it very briefly mm -hmm. the other thing that Marcia points out though is that 
Furman also seems to be totally starstruck by O.J. Simpson. Huh. This is what she says. As we walked the lawn that sloped north toward Ashford, we came to a bronze statue of a man in football uniform. He was holding a helmet. Furman stopped in front of it. He got that when he won the Heisman Trophy, he said, as if it was something I should know. (laughs) I sneaked a look at Furman out of the corner of my eye. He was staring at that statue with unguarded awe. Oh, my God. It's just so weird. It's the dumbest shit. How so? The guy has a statue of himself in his own house. Yeah, and also one that his his son from his first marriage attacked with a bat <laughs> at one point. I know Mark Furman is not every man, but I'm just thinking of all the men that accuse women of, like, being frivolous for being into fashion or, like, the royal family or whatever. It's like... Oh, so why do you revere O.J. Simpson? Oh, because he can pick up a ball and run it across a line faster than the other boys can run it across a line. And also avoid other boys who are trying to tackle him and yeah. and stuff. Yeah. It's like, yeah, women's uh, women's hobbies are really, really silly there, buddy. Right. Literally everyone's interests are stupid. Like, we should all just, <laughs> we should all yeah. just admit it. My interests are stupid. Yours are. That's why they're fun. We can't all be interested in serious things all the time. I know. Makeup is frivolous sports is frivolous it's fine (laughs) yeah and that mark Furman, based on his taped statements like is quite racist yes even he is like wow yeah it's the fastest boy (laughs) i know it's so Uh, uh. (laughs) so this is marcia this is ah the marcia clark story like this is it this is this is the world she's in yeah and everyone's like why is Marsha doing her makeup that way? Right. And it's like, yes, if only Marsha could master whatever you want her to do with foundation. Right. This trial would swing her way. Right. Like the the detectives would be competent and celebrity right. wouldn't be the one force more powerful than racism. And yeah. she wouldn't be locked in a weird bureaucracy where she has to... Not really mention to their faces the terrible behavior of the detectives that she's working with because she has to maintain a good relationship with them. It's like, if only, if only she wore lighter colors, all that would go away. <laughs> okay. So Marcia goes back to the office. She wants to hear how the case is going. She wants to know if they've arrested him. How has the interview gone? Like, Mm -hmm. what are they figuring out at the crime scene? She's like waiting for the detectives to call her. And her boss, David Kahn, is like, why don't you give them a call? And she says, he was right. Why sit here like some Deb waiting for a prom date? I rang Parker Center, Mm -hmm. which I love. Like, this is her prom date. She's waiting for these detectives to get back to her. And they're like, oh, yeah, we interviewed him. And we taped it. Don't worry about that. And she's like, so where are you holding him? (laughs) Oh, no. Wait, so this is where we we now intersect with Paula, that, like, they let him go, right, eventually? They let him go, and they interview him for slightly over half an hour. Oh, what? Mm Mm-hmm. Wait, there's blood on the... There's there's a trail of blood. (laughs) Why? What? I know. I, I mean, yeah, I mean, try and do you want to hear some of the interview? Oh, yes, please. Okay. Extremely. The other amazing thing OJ did, by the way, is that he already has a lawyer at this point. Like yeah. he's not lawyerless. He's he he's already has a lawyer on hand. Mm-hmm. But he decides that he wants to talk to the police by himself no. without counsel. What? Just why not? And this is just my guess, but my guess here is that he's like, I'm O.J. Simpson. 
I can get out of this. Right. I can talk my way through it. And they kind of let him. Oh, God. And so when Marcia gets the tape of this, the way she describes it is that she like sits down in her oversized leatherette chair and she like gets ready to parse the evidence and, you know, kind of settles in to listen to this long interrogation where they're going to mm-hmm. catch him in his inconsistencies. Yeah, she's lit candles. She's got Madonna's erotica <laughs> <She's> <laughs> on. She's in the tub. She's got... <laughs> exactly. Yeah. She's in her her happy place. Mm-hmm. And they kind of pleasantly chat with him for half an hour and are like, well, go call your girlfriend, I guess. I want to hear these excerpts from the interview. I'm like already mad. I'm like pre-mad thinking about this interview. How do you think Marsha feels? Oh my God, I know. Let me, guess, let me read a little bit of this to you. So Van Etter, we're investigating, obviously, the death of your ex-wife and another man. Lang says, someone told us that. Van Adder says, yeah, and we're going to need to talk to you about that. <laughs> God, it's like an internet date. It's like when you, you catch your child flagrantly masturbating and you're like, <laughs> I'm embarrassed to, I don't want you <laughs> to feel bad, but like, I know what you're doing. <laughs> so Van Adder says, yeah, and we're going to need to talk to you about that. Are you divorced from her now? OJ says, yes. And uh, Van Adder says, what was your relationship with her? What was the... And OJ says, well, we tried to get back together and it just didn't work. And I think we both knew it wasn't working. And probably three weeks ago, we said it just wasn't working and we went our separate ways. What would you respond to that with? I mean, I guess you would ask if if if, there, if he had any reason to be angry with her, like trying to feel out if he had a motive. This is with all of my background knowledge. But I notice he says probably three weeks ago or so. We said it just wasn't working and we went our separate ways. Mm-hmm. My first impulse is to be like, oh, so like, was it totally mutual? Like you both totally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Cause like how right. often do totally mutual breakups happen? Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. It's kind of a conspicuously friction free thing to describe. Yeah. yeah so OJ okay, says so she came back about a year and four months ago about us trying to get back together and we gave it a shot. And probably three weeks ago or so we said it just wasn't working. And we went our separate ways. And Van Adder says, okay, the two children are yours. (laughs) Just like, all right, great. That's like me on this podcast. Just like, okay. Okay. Yeah. Imagine him saying, like, okay, I don't want to talk about Michael Bolton. (laughs) Okay. The two children are yours. And OJ says, yes. Van Adder says, how is your separation? And OJ says, for me, it was big problems. I loved her. I didn't want us to separate. And Van Etter says, "Uh uh-huh. I understand she made a couple of crime reports or something. (laughs) I don't think that vagueness is because he doesn't know what he's talking about. I think, again, it's like, um, so this is embarrassing. This also implies that he knows that there are reports of domestic abuse. Yeah, it certainly seems that he does. Uh, Well, let me read you the next exchange. So OJ says, ah, we have a big fight about six years ago on New Year's. You know, she made a report. I didn't make a report. And then we had an altercation about a year ago, maybe. This is the 1993-911 call where he's kicking her door in. It wasn't mm-hmm. a physical argument. I kicked her door or something. Oh, my God. Van Adder says, and she made a police report on those two occasions. And OJ says, mm-hmm. And I stayed right there until the police came. Lang says, were you arrested at one time for something? And OJ says, no. I mean, five years ago, we had a big fight. Six years ago, I don't know. 
I know I ended up doing community service. Like the way he talks about this, it's like if you like spoke French as a child, but you haven't since then, you're Mm. like, oh, it's through the misty haze of time. I vaguely remember I see myself doing community service, but like it just feels like he hasn't integrated it as part of what he sees as his actual past. Yeah. Like he hasn't thought much about it or see he doesn't see it as significant i wonder if they are domestic abuse illiterate to the degree that they don't see a connection between the previous charges and the possibility of him having committed the murder yeah that's what i'm wondering too yeah like seeing it as the equivalent of like a burglary charge or something that like he's got priors but like maybe that's just not super relevant i don't know incredible so he says After the recital was the last time he saw Nicole and her family, and he claims that Nicole's mom invited him to dinner, but he said, no, I have never heard anyone else say that that happened. So that's interesting. Right. Um, Mm -hmm. I would find it interesting if like even in a police interrogation, he's like lying about something irrelevant (laughs) that just seems to be about his pride. That's like, oh, no, Nicole's mom totally wanted me to come to dinner. It's like he can't not lie. It's fascinating. Van Adder says, where did he go from there? Okay. OJ says, ah, home, home for a while, got my car for a while, tried to find my girlfriend for a while, came back to the house. It's like a little poem. Yeah. So what time do you think you got back home? Actually physically got home. Seven something. Van Adder says seven something. And then he left. And and again, it's like, so you're leaving it with seven something. You're like, oh, seven something. Yeah, that's mm hmm. Yes. Right. It is mystifying, right? Because, like, this is not their first time being cops. Like, they know what they're doing. (laughs) And then he left, and and OJ says, yeah, I'm trying to think. Did I leave? You know, I'm always... I had to run and get my daughter some flowers. I was actually doing the recital, so I rushed to get her some flowers. So now he's suddenly talking about before the recital. He's, like, switched to a different period of time. Right. And I came home, and then I called Paula as I was going to her house, and Paula wasn't home. Okay. Van Adder, Paula is your girlfriend? Simpson, girlfriend, yeah. Although she had actually broken up with him by voicemail that morning, so even that's a little exaggeration, (laughs) too. (laughs) He's like, yeah, my girlfriend, that's the ticket, my girlfriend who broke up with me and fled (laughs) to Las Vegas (laughs) to be with Michael Bolton, like all girlfriends do. (laughs) Van Adder, so you didn't see her last night about Paula. OJ says, no, we'd been to a big affair the night before, and then I came back home. I was basically at home. And then they ask him... If he was scheduled to play golf today, he says yes. In Chicago, he was playing with like Hertz clients. This is essentially a lot of his work at this point in his life involves like playing golf in some way. Interesting. Just like glad handing various corporate people. And then Van Adder says, what time did you leave last night? Leave the house. Okay. About the limo was supposed to be there at 1045. Normally they get there a little earlier. I was rushing around somewhere between there and 11. Van Adder. So approximately 1045 to 11. Simpson. 11 o'clock. Yeah. Somewhere in that area. Okay. Ish. I find it so interesting that they put no effort into establishing time frame during this conversation. I know. And also the fact that essentially his alibi for this whole thing is like, I was at home by myself (laughs) watching Turner Classic (laughs) movies. Like, is that the whole alibi? Even if they have like very incomplete information, like even if we're as charitable as possible about like what they do and do not know, like they know that the time between like 9 and 11 p.m. is extremely important. Right. right? And they're just like, okay, (laughs) next question. Right. That's like a pretty long period of time that he hasn't accounted for. (sighs) Or where he's basically given himself 
these like areas of strategic wiggle room. Like all of these are basically yeah. holes that he and his right. lawyers are going to be able to squirm through later. Right. And they're right. not challenging right. him on any of them and they're not sealing them yeah. up. They're letting them stay there on the record. Unbelievable. Imagine Marsha sitting there in her chair, I know. you know, <laughs> I'm I'm imagining her with a glass of red wine, just like angrily smoking a cigarette and the camera zooming in slowly as she's listening to this. That would be riveting. (laughs) So OJ says of uh, calling Paula, he says, I called her a couple of times and she wasn't there and I left a message and then I checked my messages and there were no new messages. She wasn't there and she may have to leave town. Then I came back and ended up sitting with Cato. Wait, so he hung out with Cato at the time. Is that his alibi? He did. He came home and he hung back with he hung around with Cato. Okay. So OJ says he went out and got a burger with Cato and but he came home kind of leisurely and got ready to go. This is like a rare moment of the cops like seizing on something because Lang says you weren't in a hurry when you came back with the Bronco and OJ says no. And Lang says, the reason I asked you, the cars were parked kind of at a funny angle, stuck out in the street. And OJ says, well, it's parked because when I was hustling at the end of the day to get all my stuff and I was getting my phone and everything off it, when I just pulled it out of the gate there, it's like it's a tight turn. Lang, so you had it inside the compound then? Simpson, yeah, Lang, oh, okay. (laughs) The word okay is said 27 times in this transcript and only three of those times are OJ. Van Adder says, how did you get the injury on your hand? Now, this is important because when they bring him in for questioning, they do notice that he has a cut on one of his fingers. Oh, my God. Again, the evidence. To move forward in time a little bit and quote from Marsha, she will later say in court, the bloody glove that was found at the crime scene is left handed. That's a very important fact. And then she says there were bloody shoe prints leaving the crime scene and to the left of those shoe prints were blood drops. Mm -hmm. So Marcia says, that shows us that the killer was injured somewhere on his left side. The blood on the driver's door handle of the Ford Bronco would logically be opened with the left hand. And it's no coincidence that we just happened to find the blood spot on the driver's door handle. Ah! Now, on the day the defendant returned from Chicago, Detective Van Adder makes the observation that he saw the left-handed bloody glove left at the crime scene that clearly came off during the struggle which is what allowed him to get the cut that left the blood drops to the left of the footprints. Mm -hmm. Van Adder sees the blood drops on the driver's hand door. He sees the defendant with a bandage around his middle left finger. And then he takes him down to Parker Center, where he sees again that he has a swollen finger on the left hand with a cut that was dressed and treated at Parker Center. No coincidence. Uh... So he literally, he comes into this questioning without his lawyer, with a cut... (laughs) On his left hand, which the police already can observe corresponds with evidence that they found at the crime scene. And the police are the ones who dress his wound for him. I mean, Van Adder says, how did you get the injury on your hand? And Oji says, I don't know. The first time when I was in Chicago and all, but at the house, I was just running around. Not convincing. (laughs) Okay. Well, it's also it's like, so there's a second time. What? Like you injured your hand twice now? I guess. Yeah. You don't remember getting a deep cut on your hand or like you do remember, but it was two different times somehow. Yeah. What? Van Adder says, how did you do it in Chicago? OJ says, I broke a glass. One of you guys had just called me and I was in the bathroom and I guess kind of went bonkers for a little bit. What? Is that how you cut it? Mm, it was cut before, but I think I just opened it again. I'm not sure. So it's like, okay. 
So what he's saying is that he cut it the first time at the house getting ready to leave, and then he recut it when he broke a glass in Chicago. Unbelievable. Lang, so do you recall bleeding at all? Simpson. Yeah, I mean, I knew I was bleeding, but it was no big deal. I bleed all the time. (laughs) I play golf and stuff, so there's always something, nicks and stuff here and there. And it's like, yes, OJ, you play golf, so you're always getting deep cuts on your hands. The rough and tumble life of a golfer. (laughs) They say, when was the last time you were at Nicole's house? OJ says, I don't go in. I won't go in her house. It's like, oh, that's an interesting reaction from someone who had a mutual breakup. Had a mutual breakup. (laughs) I haven't been her house in a week, maybe five days. I go to her house a lot. I mean, I'm always dropping the kids off, picking the kids up, fooling around with the dog, you know. Ben Etter, how does that usually work? Do you drop them at the porch or do you go in with them? Simpson, no, I don't go in the house. Van Etter says, you haven't had any problems with her lately, have you, OJ? OJ says, I always have problems with her, you know? Our relationship has been a problem relationship. Van Etter, did you talk to her last night? Simpson, to ask to speak to my daughter, to congratulate my daughter and everything. Van Etter, but you didn't have a conversation with her. Simpson, no. Van Etter, what were you wearing last night, OJ? Okay. (laughs) What kind of shoes were you wearing? Tennis shoes. Tennis shoes? Do you know what kind? Probably Reebok. That's all I wear. And the fact that he's saying all he wears is Reebok and that they're not pressing him on that either is interesting because they're like, oh, you only wear one kind of shoe and it's definitely not the kind of brand of shoe that was uh, worn by the killer. Uh, You go to a lot of black tie functions and so on. You just wear Reeboks every (laughs) single day. So he's kind of making small talk with them about, you know, his whole life is on and off airplanes. He's always flying off somewhere to play golf. The hectic life of O.J. Simpson. And then kind of as the interview is winding down, they start kind of getting to the point. And Van Adder says, OJ, we've got sort of a problem. We've got some blood on and in your car. We've got some blood at your house. Sorry to break this to you, pal. but uh, We got sort of a problem. (laughs) Tell us about the old little diddly dang old blood we found in your little truck (laughs) arena. OJ says, well, take my blood test. And Lang says, well, we'd like to do that. We've got, of course, the cut on your finger that you aren't real clear on. Do you recall having that cut on your finger the last time you were at Nicole's house? OJ, no, it was last night. And they come back to the fact that they have been trying to reconcile until about three weeks ago. Mm-hmm. Van Adder, did you ever hit her, OJ? OJ says, ah, uh, one night we had a fight and she hit me. <laughs> And they never took my statement. They never wanted to hear my side. And they never oh wanted God. to hear the housekeeper's side. I'm the real victim. Perfect. <sighs> Nicole was drunk. She did her thing. She started tearing up my house, you know. I didn't punch her or anything. But I, and Van Adder says, slapped her a couple times. And OJ says, no, no, I wrestled her is what I did. I didn't slap her at all. I mean, Nicole's a strong girl. She's uh, one of the most conditioned women. Since that period of time, she's hit me a few times, but I've never touched her after that. And I'm telling you, it's five, six years ago. Okay is like not good at saying when something happened. Yeah. <laughs> You're like, okay, like when is the movie going to start? And he's like, between six and eight thirty. <laughs> That's not helpful. And then Lang asks OJ about taking a polygraph test for them. Mm-hmm. OJ says, should I talk about my thoughts on that? I'm sure eventually I'll do it, but... 
He's like, should I talk about my? Yeah, okay, yes, I'm doing it. Okay. <laughs> Nicole's mom is quoted in Sheila Weller's book saying that if you were having a phone call with OJ, you could like put the phone down for five minutes and come back and he would still be in mid soliloquy. I've been on dates like that where you accidentally bring up barefoot running and then you get like a 35 minute long monologue. <laughs> One of the sad things about this interview is that like it would suck if they had any suspect in a case where there was this much evidence and they put this little pressure on him. But you also get the sense that, like, it's harder for him not to talk than to talk. He's like, should I talk about my thoughts on the polygraph? Yeah. Well, I am. So yeah. <laughs> let's it's happening. <laughs> yeah, it fe- it almost it feels like watching someone just take a bite straight out of a string cheese. It's like, why would you yeah. do that? <laughs> <laughs> so Lang says, understand, the reason we're talking to you is because you're the ex-husband. And OJ says, I know, I'm the number one target. And now you tell me I've got blood all over the place. <laughs> like it's their fault. <laughs> God. Ah, okay, this is almost over. We're getting there. <laughs> Lang once again confirms he gets OJ to say again, like he gives him a chance to go back on this. Like, let me get this straight. You've never physically been inside the house. And Simpson says, not in the last week. And Lang says, ever. And OJ says, oh, Christ, I've slept at the house many, many, many times. You know, I've done everything at the house. You know, I'm just saying you're talking in the last week or so. Okay. (laughs) And it's like, I've never been inside the house. And they're like, so you've never been in the house. And he's like, not in the last week. It's not like a criminal mastermind we're interrogating here. This is not like a little verbal chess game. This is the last little bit of tape. He says, oh, I'll tell you, I did see her one day. I don't know if this was the early part of last week. I went because my son had to go and get something. And he ran in and she came to the gate and the dog ran out. And her friend Faye and I went looking for the dog. That may have been a week ago. I don't know. Lang to Van Adder. Got a photographer coming? Van Adder. No, we're going to take him up there. Lang, we're ready to terminate this at 14.07. Crack work, guys. So they have started this interview at 1.35 p.m. and ended it at 2.07. Awesome. Good stuff. (laughs) You got him alone without a lawyer. Why take up longer time than an episode of ER? Good stuff. (laughs) So, I mean, what what was the purpose of this? What did they learn? I... What what do you even say at this point? It's like so obvious. You sound, you seem speechless. I'm stymied. Tell me just like what comes to your head. Cause I've been immersed in this for so long that like these details are pretty familiar to me. Like I think I've lost some of my surprise. It just seems like at this point they should like arrest the guy. Like he doesn't have a strong <laughs> alibi. He just broke up with his ex-wife who he has a history of domestic abuse with. And who made a 911 call about him less than a year ago. Exactly. There's one glove at the murder scene and the other fucking glove at his house. I just don't understand how they're not just like, we got him, boys. I mean, the, the defense will later argue that, like, the sheer quantity of evidence actually supports their claim that OJ was framed. And it's like, you know what? Kind of. Right. Like, people don't often leave this much evidence behind right. when they commit right. a murder. So, I mean, they can't have been confused about what any of this meant. Yeah. But... I feel like they knew what they had to do, but they just, like, didn't do it. What do you think explains this? Are, are, are they just dazzled by his celebrity? Like, what, what 
is this? Marsha says they tell her that he's too famous to flee. And she's like, bull fucking shit. Who cares? It doesn't matter. There's more stuff you can do beside fleeing. He could be intimidating witnesses. He could be tampering with evidence. He could be destroying evidence. Right. what are you talking about? Oh, Marsha. And they talk to him for 30 minutes during which they don't really pin him down on much of anything. And then he gets to go. And then there's four days <laughs> between the police interview and him surrendering and being <sighs> arrested where he has that time to basically be ironing things out yeah, yeah, yeah. with his lawyers to be potentially doing all the stuff Marsha talked about. He does seem to have spent a lot of time just like drugged watching turner classic movies but i mean still 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 but so yeah what so is contemporaneously like is Marsha as mad about this then as we are now like is it obvious to her how bad this was michael you know Marsha and her ways i mean (laughs) you know i mean think about the fact that you and i are like very soft on crime people who also don't know how to be cops or lawyers and we're like oh Mm. This is bad. Yeah. Marsha is fucking livid. So what does she do? Nothing. She has to maintain (laughs) a good relationship with the cops. Oh, so she can't like go in there and bust heads? No, she has to be like, that was great. Oh, no. So, okay, here's what Marsha says. You ready? Mm -hmm. I didn't get it. Simpson had spent three full hours at the station. What could they have been doing all that time? Oh, he was there for three hours? He was. Okay. (laughs) I was even more disturbed by what was on the tape. Phil and Tom both sounded exhausted. That was understandable. They'd been up since three in the morning of June 13th. But that was no reason to allow a potential suspect in a double murder to set the program for the interview. Yeah. Any Monday morning quarterback, that's us, can now see that Simpson lied to Tom and Phil all through that interview. Mm. Of course, some of the lies weren't as apparent to them at the time. For instance, Simpson claimed that he'd been invited to dinner with the Brown family after the recital, which Nicole's mother would later deny. Tom and Phil couldn't have known that yet. But on other, more elemental points, like where and when he'd parked the Bronco, there was plenty they could have done. Yeah. Lang, what time did you last park the Bronco? Eight something, replied the suspect. Maybe seven, eight o'clock, eight, nine o'clock. I don't know. Right in that, right in that area. Marcia says the follow-up should have come hard and fast. Well, what the hell was it? Seven, seven thirty, eight, or nine. You knew right. you had a flight to catch, so shouldn't you have been aware of the time? What time did you park? What did you do then? Right. On some fundamental level, I think Tom and Phil wanted to hear a plausible explanation that would eliminate Simpson from suspicion. Just when they got a big opening, they'd move on to something else. And then Marsha's sitting there listening to this very short interview and gets to the part where they're questioning him about the 1989 beating. And mm-hmm. asked, so you slapped her a couple times? And he says, no, I wrestled her is all I did. And they say, oh, okay. And Marcia thinks to herself, Nicole is dead. His children have no mother. He's talking about the time he was arrested for beating her. And once again, he is whining about how he feels mistreated. Right. As I sat listening to this crap, I thought, this guy is going to deny everything all the way. He's mm. never going to confess. There wasn't one shred of remorse there. Not enough real soul for him to need to unburden it by telling the truth. That interview was one of the worst bits of police work I'd ever seen, but I kept my thoughts to myself. I couldn't afford to alienate my chief investigators. Besides, Mm -hmm. it was spilt milk. 
complaining about right. their ineptitude would not help me get through this case. So she just swallows it. She has to. Yeah. You just have to, you know, you have, you have to say, well, it's done. You know, we yeah. can't go back and we're going to move forward and I'm going to maintain relations with my detectives. And she has no power to affect things either. So it's like she she's watching this like us watching a horror movie, right? That she's like, don't go in the basement. She's yeah. like, don't yeah. put these ding-dongs on this case we're gonna fuck it up well and think about the fact that she already has a reputation for like being difficult right. because of her like past insistence on having like good forensic evidence right she already has a reputation for having standards yeah i mean speaking of the difference between marcia four years ago and marcia now is that i think we're all much more poised to hear the word difficult in like a gendered way now yeah <laughs> but it's like typically yeah. when we have yeah. women in professional positions who are considered difficult it usually means like, yes, they are insisting on standards or like, you know, actresses that are difficult because like they complained about rampant sexual harassment on the set. Like it's just hearing that a woman is considered difficult. I just hear it so differently now than I used to. They didn't want to be sexually assaulted at work. So she's aware of this dynamic from day. This is literally day one. So she's like she's seeing this celebrity blindness take over the entire police force already. Yeah. She knows what she has to work with. Yeah. She's being given kind of in many form what this entire trial is going to be right. for her, which is that she doesn't have trustworthy allies in the LAPD. Mm -hmm. Everything is political. Mm -hmm. Like she's looking at <laughs> essentially like an app sampler mm -hmm. of the next 15 months yeah. of her life. Yeah. And God bless Marsha, because, you know, she has had a day. Right. She goes home to be with her two little kids, and the wall behind her bed basically gets damp and moldy in spring and fall, so she spends, like, spring and fall with respiratory infections. Whoa. This is, like, so Aaron Brockovich to me, right? She yeah. goes home to her, like, public servant tract home in Glendale with her two little kids, with her, like, swamp wall. And finds like a spider the size of a pinball, she says, hanging out in her room. And she's just like, well, I got a new case. I'm pretty excited. Right. <laughs> and she writes, I found to my surprise that I was in an indestructibly good mood. <laughs> True. The cops had cut loose the suspect in a double homicide when they had a mountain of evidence to hold him. True. They were holding me at arm's length. But you work with what you've got. The fact of the matter was, I loved having a new case. A new case is like a secret lover. You think about it. Plan for it. It infuses unrelated events with a sense of purpose. That's how it's supposed to feel. Mind and heart engaged, neither tripping over the other. I hadn't been that happy in a long time. Oh... It's like the letters from Nicole talking about being happy with OJ. It's like looking at the footage from their wedding. It's like everyone's so happy, but you know it's going to end in this nightmare. <sighs> it's like, no, Marsha. With Marsha, it's interesting because I feel like she's observing the arc of this for like the rest of her life. Mm -hmm. So like this case destroyed her. She didn't even clean out her desk <gasps> after it ended. Like someone else had to do it for oh her. God. She like could not go back to her office. She never got her desk clean. <laughs> you know, I mean, this was it for her. Yeah. She was done. This was the end of her life as a trial lawyer. Really? Maybe this is just me like over identifying with her and wanting her to be like me. But I feel like I see in her kind of the thing that we saw in Nancy Kerrigan when she skated at 1993 Worlds and just like fell a bunch mm -hmm. and just like the footage of her in that competition the camera like zooms really close on her face as her scores are coming back and you can see her feeling like she let everybody down. Yeah. And I feel like Marsha 
feels like she either has to nail this or let everybody down. Right. I guess I almost wonder if like if having an experience where the entire world watched her fail and blamed her for it was like the only thing that could like make Marsha not blame herself all the time. Like what if, you know, looking at the world, blaming you and being like, well, that's not totally true. Mm. I didn't screw everything up. Maybe everything isn't my fault. Right. What do you think? I feel like we struggle to separate the outcome from the process. Yes. Like they lost this case. It should have been a slam dunk and they lost it. Like that's an undeniable thing. But it's also, it's possible to be good at your job and still fail. And it's possible to be really bad at your job and still win. Mike, I do it every day. (laughs) And so I think it's like we we look at the result and then we backfill whatever. Like, well, if she lost, she must have been incompetent. Right. She must not have cared enough. She must have bungled evidence. She must and she must be in charge of all of the failures, right? All of the failures must be hers because she oversaw this big failure. Right. Like Marsha is the dictator of like right. the entire legal system in this right. scenario where it was all under her control. Right. I'm sure that Marsha made mistakes and I'm sure that OJ's team made mistakes too. Right. Once the victory is locked in, then it's like, no, she must have sucked and they must have been geniuses. Because we don't want to believe that we could be Marsha. Yeah. And we could all be Marsha at any time. Yeah. We are all one terrible project management away from just tearing our hair out in the way that she was forced to. Right. We promised you the Bronco chase in this episode. It's not happening. (laughs) We've been recording for five hours and it's getting dark and I was supposed to go outside today. So I'm very sorry. (laughs) Sometimes the flat iron of hindsight is slow. Yes. (laughs) What are you excited to talk about next? The Bronco chase. I'm going to keep saying that for like the next three episodes <laughs> until we get to it. What if we never talk about it and we never no. get to it and we just keep doing this podcast for the rest of our lives? Every episode we move more slowly toward the goal. Yeah. It's kind of, it's like that math problem about if you like cut your the distance you travel in half each yeah, yeah, yeah. time, will you ever reach the Bronco <laughs> chase? No. No. <laughs> <laughs>